Blessings of the Triple Gem, Teruan Saranai. Welcome to another Sutta Meditation Series Dhamma Livestream. Heartfelt good wishes to everyone joining today. The title for today's Dhamma session is The Five Subjects to Frequently Contemplate. And this is based on the Abhinha Pacha Vekitaba Tanha Sutta. And this is in Anguttarikaya Chapter 5, Discourse Number 57. The main purpose of today's live stream is to review and practice these contemplations together. This session follows on from the last live stream on precious human birth. And as we highlighted in that session, the five subjects to frequently contemplate is another powerful meditation recommended by the Buddha to correct any wrong view with the right view and to understand the first noble truth of suffering. So this helps us to activate the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the way leading to the ending of suffering, and ensuring that we make the most of this rare opportunity of gaining a human birth. So let's begin by paying respects to the Triple Gem. We can bow our heads and Anjali. Homage to the Buddha. Homage to the Dhamma and homage to the Noble Sangha. So let's have a quick look at what we'll cover in this session. So we'll start with how to get the best out of this session, some tips and reminders. Then I'll provide a quick overview of the Abhinha Pacha Vekitaba Tanha Sutta and why the Buddha encourages these five subjects for frequent contemplation. We'll then review the five subjects with an explanation and short meditation on each. And we'll close the session by sharing the merit and blessings. So how to get the best out of this session? As usual, keep an open mind, be open and attentive to the Buddha's words in this discourse and the instructions for today's meditations. Also be okay with not understanding everything. What you understand in this session and are able to practice, that's maybe what is needed right now. And the rest will come later. And remember that we're all learners, we're all seekers, we're here to lean on each other to make effort towards developing the noble path, and we are definitely walking this path together. Also apply yourself to the meditations, really give yourself the opportunity to contemplate the Dhamma during this session, not just listening. And use your own examples, because as we've said before, to connect with the Dhamma, we need to see the Dhamma directly for ourselves. And so when we apply our own examples, we get the opportunity to gain direct insight. And when we see the Dhamma, we see the Buddha. And when we see the Buddha, we see the Dhamma. That's how the Buddha says it works. So have good wishes for everyone, those who are online right now, but also anyone who's helped us on this spiritual journey, this spiritual path up to this point, and anyone who makes it possible for us to join Dhamma sessions. So some of you may already be aware that we've had earlier sessions on the Buddha's five subjects to frequently contemplate, but for those who aren't, there's an extended study on this particular subject, as well as cross-referencing many other relevant teachings of the Buddha. There's also a guided meditation, and finally, there's also a shorter encouragement Dhamma session, so encouragement towards the actual Sutta meditation. 
And all of those things can be accessed um, on videos on this channel, as well as the audio version is available on our podcast. So today's session will be focusing on clarifying and practicing the contemplations together. So the teaching by the Buddha in this sutta can be broken into four parts. So the Buddha begins with the summary of the five subjects that should be frequently contemplated or reflected upon by a man or a woman, by a householder or one gone forth. So this contemplation is for all of us who are seeking to penetrate the Buddha's teachings. The second part, the Buddha goes on to explain the benefit of frequently contemplating on each subject and what is abandoned or diminished as a result of this practice. And in the third part, the Buddha emphasizes how we must contemplate the five as collective or universal truths that all beings are subject to. No one is exempt. And so if we frequently contemplate in this way, then what the Buddha says is we generate the Noble Eightfold Path. And if we pursue the Noble Eightfold Path, then we will be able to entirely abandon the fetters and uproot the underlying tendencies. So here the Buddha is saying that that means the supreme safety and happiness of Nibbana can be realized. And the final part of the sutta gives us four verses uttered by the Buddha, referencing his own contemplation and direct insight. And so we can ultimately expect the same insight if we follow his instructions in this teaching. The reason why the Buddha encourages us to frequently contemplate these five subjects is to identify any wrong views. Because by doing so, we can abandon whatever may be obstructing us from the right view. If we establish the right view, then we generate the Noble Eightfold Path, because the other path factors will follow. What underpins these five subjects is really the first Noble Truth, which is the Noble Truth of Suffering. If you recall in the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, so the first teaching of the Buddha, where he set in motion the Wheel of Dhamma, he said, now because this is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not getting what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. Now, unfortunately, when we take refuge in the world, and we're constantly conditioned by the world, our view remains distorted. So for example, the world directly or indirectly tells us it's good to be intoxicated with youth, health, life, to indulge as much as we want. So we can't see the noble truth of suffering because it's covered and obstructed by lies and the deceptive nature of the world. Whatever views and actions that brought us to this current birth, this current human birth, are still leading us along by the same, the same wrong view, the same misconduct by body, speech and mind. So when we contemplate these five subjects, it helps us to understand the noble truth of suffering and to understand the dangers of this sense world and essential pleasures. If we don't understand and don't penetrate the first noble truth, as we said before, we will become defeated in our noble quest, in our spiritual quest, to find the way out of suffering. This is because we would continue to pursue what the Buddha calls the ignoble quest. So by frequently contemplating these five subjects, we start to understand what the Buddha means by this, 
When we frequently contemplate these five subjects, we also activate and establish the right view. And we abandon the hindrances and defilements that defile the mind because we get the right intention, it aligns with the right view. And what the Buddha says is that all the things, if we remove them from the mind, then those obstructions won't obstruct this path. And the Buddha teaches that this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the cessation of all suffering because it's rooted in non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion. It goes against the worldly stream. And so when this right view is active, we cultivate virtuous conduct. So by body, speech and mind, and the right path is generated. So it's important to remember, if we don't establish the right path, which is this Noble Eightfold Path, if we don't establish the right view, then we don't generate this path. That means we indulge down here the wrong view. And this leads to misconduct by body, speech and mind. And we continue to generate this wrong path, the one that is rooted instead in greed, hatred and delusion. So that keeps us bound to samsara and this whole mass of suffering. And if this is the case, then we're definitely not making the most of this precious human birth. If we have sadda, which is conviction, faith or confidence in the Buddha, we need to heed the Buddha's words in this discourse and frequently contemplate these five subjects. These collective universal truths which are con contained in each contemplation, they can be inconvenient or difficult at first, but there is a relief and true liberation in understanding them. When we see their importance, it becomes our determination for the truth, our satcha aditana. And this is conditioned by understanding the noble truth of suffering. The alternative is to continue with a false sense of assurance in the lies and deceptions constructed in the world. And those always result in death or deadly suffering. And these five subjects help us to see the physical nutriment as it really is. This body, other people's body, other sensual pleasures. And to understand this sensuality and its link to the greed path, it's also possible to apply these five subjects as the meditation object for the first doorway to Nibbana, painful practice with slow realization, the one that culminates in immeasurable metta, where we truly see that we are all brothers and sisters in birth, old age, sickness, death, being separated from what is pleasing and bound to our actions or kamma. So as we shall see from this session today, there is much to gain from making effort towards this practice. With that in mind, let's begin with the Buddha's open summary. So Buddha says, Bhikkhus, there are these five subjects that should often be reflected upon by a woman or a man, by a householder or one gone forth. What five? So for a woman or a man, a household or one gone forth, should often reflect thus, I am subject to old age. I am not exempt from old age. And then the second one is, I am subject to illness. I am not exempt from illness. And the third is, I am subject to death. I am not exempt from death. The fourth is, I must be parted and separated from everyone and everything dear and agreeable to me. And the fifth is, I am the owner of my kamma, 
the heir of my karma. I have karma as my origin, karma as my relative, karma as my resort. I will be the heir of whatever karma, good or bad, that I do. So we can see that these five subjects for frequent contemplation or things to be reflected upon is relevant and beneficial to all who wish to follow the Buddha's teaching. So we'll go through these one by one and do a short meditation on each. So the first subject to be reflected upon is, I am subject to old age, I am not exempt from old age. So the Buddha says here, in their youth, beings are intoxicated with their youth. And when they are intoxicated with their youth, they engage in misconduct by body, speech and mind. With this statement, the Buddha is telling us, if we're vain or conceited, intoxicated with youth, in Pali the word is Yobanamata, this is what blocks us from seeing the truth regarding the nature of the body to age. So when we are intoxicated like this, we would engage in misconduct by body, speech and mind, and we wouldn't be restrained. Now we are conditioned in the world to think that youth is pleasing and attractive. So subasanya, we have the perception, also the, the thoughts and the view that it's pleasing, it's attractive. And by comparison, aging or old age is displeasing or repulsive. In other words, we raise or glorify youth and lower or have contempt for old age, directly or indirectly. And so our ideas, our attitudes, our behaviors are distorted or corrupted. Some of the examples in our society to promote youthfulness, we see them in our advertising. We also see them in how we try and circumvent old age. So the beauty industry the anti-aging creams, the skincare, the Botox, all the makeup, hair dyes, wigs. And then when it comes to the entertainment industry, you think about the way we always promote celebrities who are youthful or models, actors, things in fashion magazines. Everything's meant to show this beauty and particularly beauty in youth. And when it comes to the medical industry, then you see anti-aging pills and tonics and cryonics and plastic surgery. And then, of course, when you go to the section in the, in the bookstore, they have books with titles that say How to Stay Young, Age Later, and Growing Young, or Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To, you know, titles like that. But there is only one truth about the body, the physical nutriment, this coupling karahara, and its predicament is really that it is subject to old age, it is not exempt from old age. And so the Buddha then goes on to encourage us, but when one often reflects upon this subject, the intoxication with youth is either completely abandoned or diminished. So similar to when we have discussed this before, when we've looked at vanity or intoxication as a defilement in the Vatubhama Sutta, we need to investigate if we have this defilement and to see how it gets activated. We know that when there is conceit, we don't see it is our nature to age, so we become vain or intoxicated with our usefulness. So we need to check if we think, I'm still young compared to so-and-so, so some other person in our life. And remember that even an 80-year-old person would think, I'm still younger than a 90-year-old or a 100-year-old. 
Or we might also think, I stay youthful because I stay out of the sun or I have a really good skincare routine. Maybe we take delight when someone gives a compliment and says, oh, you look really good for your age. I can't believe you're that age. And we fall for that. And then another one could be we think, oh, if I dye my hair and wear all this makeup and dress more youthful, people won't know how old I am. And then maybe recently there's been articles about future anti-aging pills and you think to yourself, oh, I can't wait for that to come. Then I'll be able to, to stop this aging process. And when we're young, there's a tendency to think, oh, we're young. We can do what we like. There's plenty of time. I still, I've still look good in everything. So this vanity or intoxication with youth is caused by wrong view and it covers the truth of how things really are. So we need to investigate with our own examples because that's where we get to see how we may deny the truth or how we are conditioned to fear aging and or even deny aging. And in examining this vanity or intoxication with youth, it's important to recognize that this body begins to age from the minute that we are born into this world. We may not think we have vanity or intoxication with youth, but also think how much time or effort or money are we spending on covering up aging? And to ask the question, is it really possible to overcome aging? It may be possible to delay some of the effects of aging, but to completely overcome aging, that's not possible. So intoxication with youth is a defilement that is founded on lies. So honesty is the key here. There's always someone to say, oh, you shouldn't think about old age because it manifests faster. But is that really true? No, we age every second, minute, hour of the day. It doesn't slow down just because we ignore it. However, the aging process can quicken if we burn the candle at both ends and misuse the body. So the Buddha does say in the suttas that old age is one of the divine messengers Devadutta in Pali. And it's something we must investigate. So in the Devadutta Sutta, it's described as a man or a woman, 80, 90 or 100 years of age, frail, bent like a roof bracket, crooked, wobbling, as they go along, leaning on a stick, ailing, youth gone and with broken teeth, with grey and scanty hair or bald, with wrinkled skin and blotched limbs. So that's the outer limit of it or thereabouts, is what is being explained here. But even on the way to that, we all experience receding gums, graying hair, wrinkles, uh, not having the same vitality, and things like that. And in the Jaradhamma Sutta, the Buddha speaks on the decrepitude of old age to Venerable Ananda. He says, that's how it is, Ananda. When you're young, you're liable to grow old. When healthy, you're liable to get sick, and when you're alive, you're liable to die. The complexion of the skin is no longer pure and bright. The limbs are flaccid and wrinkled, and the body is stooped. And it's apparent that there has been a deterioration in the faculties of eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. So even the Buddha was not exempt from old age. Often people focus on appearance when it comes to aging because it's more obvious and visible, 
But we also see that it starts out as an agreeable object, so manapa, aramana, in Pali, and as it ages, it can become a disagreeable object, amanapa, aramana. So we take delight in babies and their soft skin, but we tend not to delight in the elderly in the same way with grey hair, wrinkles, ailments. But it's also important to contemplate aging in the less obvious and visible way which is the gradual aging and deterioration of our sense faculties. So deterioration in our eyesight, the need for glasses, bifocals, surgery, even the loss of sight, the deterioration in our hearing, needing hearing aids, and sometimes often refusing to wear them, or deterioration in the sense of smell, and then deterioration in our taste buds, And usually the one with the taste buds is something we cannot accept or we haven't even thought about, but it's obvious when we age because we constantly find fault in food. It's not salty enough, it's not hot enough, it's not tasty enough, and we end up blaming the person who cooks, but it's actually also to do with our taste buds. And so many things also arise when it comes to the body. So we might lose our sense of balance or it's not so good. We have a slower ability to digest food. Our vitality and our physical strength isn't as good as it was. So when we're intoxicated with youthfulness in this respect, we also try and deny all these signs. We keep telling others, I can still do all these things. I have an age. Don't worry about me. Let me show you I can still keep up and things like that. So when we recognize this quality, any of these qualities, whether it's related to appearance or deteriorating faculties, it's important to see the pain and sadness associated with it. The majority of people, they actually can't accept the truth about aging. And in clinging desperately to youth, the aging body certainly becomes the disagreeable object. And that means going down the hate path. So sense contact is felt as painful, painful feelings arise, and one starts to burn with hate. So if this is the case, then the result is to continuously experience dukkha dukkata, which is the painfulness in pain. And one important thing to remember is that when we lament about our personal aging issues, so my wrinkles, my gray hair, my poor eyesight, my poor digestion, and so on, it becomes obvious that we're experiencing pain and sadness about old age because we're yearning for it to be otherwise. So the Buddha reminds us that this noble disciple reflects thus, I'm not the only one who is subject to old age, not exempt from old age. All beings that come and go, that pass away and undergo rebirth are subject to old age. None are exempt from old age. So here the Buddha is making a very important statement. It's a declaration that it's a collective or universal truth. We are all subject to old age. None of us are exempt. So we are brothers and sisters in old age. The Buddha is making sure that we don't identify with aging as a personal dukkha, but a collective one. We're not meant to moan about our personal afflictions due to aging. So this is really perceiving at a collective level impermanence of suffering, impermanence of this body, that it's subject to change, and to perceive that this kind of suffering is not me and mine. So dukkhe anatasanyi. So we see the truth of our collective predicament, 
This body is impermanent, subject to change, it's suffering, and this suffering is not to be taken as me and mine, not to be seen in personal terms to do this meditation. If we perceive aging in personal terms, me and my specific issues with aging, then the result is this personal dukkha, this dukkha dukkata, and the sadness that follows, and there's a corruption in our view. So sometimes people think that when they do this contemplation and admit and lament about aging, that that's how to do the meditation, but that's not what the Buddha intended. When we lament about aging, like complain about it, we're actually expressing an aversion to aging and the pain and sadness and the sorrow of growing old because we wish it to be otherwise and we want to be youthful, not deteriorating. But if we contemplate correctly, then we understand with wisdom our collective predicament that having birthed this kind of body, we are subject to old age. And it's a fact of this sansaric experience. So this is a very important distinction in the meditation. The Buddha then goes on to say, as he often reflects on this subject, the path is generated. He pursues this path, develops it and cultivates it. As he does so, the fetters are entirely abandoned and the underlying tendencies are uprooted. So as we said earlier, if we contemplate correctly, we establish the right view and this generates the path. And the path that is spoken of here is of course the Noble Eightfold Path. And if we cultivate it, Asevati in Pali, develop it, Bhavati in Pali, and continuously practice it, so Bahuli Karoti, then it's possible to attain Nibbana. So let's do a short meditation on this first subject to be frequently contemplated. So the first step is to investigate do we have vanity or intoxication with youth? So we need to take our own examples and really see whether we do have this and not to think, oh, we don't have this. Most of us, all of us actually do. And then to really see the suffering in it. And when we gain the direct insight, having seen it, we want to abandon this intoxication. So if we have an example that says, oh, I've still got it, I still look good, I can still do all these things even though I'm this age, these are the things we need to look at because this is blocking, blocking our path. And therefore, it ensures that we engage in misconduct. That's also why we want to abandon it. And so we need to remember, once we gain the insight and say, I want to abandon this intoxication with youth, we remember what the Buddha counsels us. Old age is a collective predicament. It's a universal truth. So that's the third step. And so we're not the only ones who are subject to old age. And we understand with this that there's no lasting happiness in this predicament of birthing this kind of body. So we don't want to take delight and take refuge in what is subject to old age and to seek rebirth and to experience this whole mass of suffering over and over. And so the fourth step is really just making a strong determination when we see that, that we want to establish the right view. We want to develop this Noble Eightfold Path. So in this meditation, allow the mind to gladden, like in the absence of wrong view, be happy that we're establishing the right view and allow the mind to concentrate and to find peace. Okay, let's do this meditation for a few minutes.
Okay, we can come out of the meditation. So the second subject to be frequently contemplated is I am subject to illness. I am not exempt from illness. The Buddha says, in a state of health, beings are intoxicated with their health. When they are intoxicated with their health, they engage in misconduct by body, speech and mind. So the Buddha is saying that if we're intoxicated with health, which is Arogya Mata, so particularly good health, this is what blocks us from seeing the truth, again regarding the nature of this body, to sicken or fall ill. And when we are intoxicated like this, we would engage in misconduct by body, speech and mind. So we are conditioned by the world to think and prioritize good health because it usually equates to strength, vitality, whereas illness is associated with weakness and frailty. So in other words, we raise or glorify good health and lower or have contempt for illness. So ideas, attitudes and behaviors are again corrupt. So some of the examples of how our society constantly promotes good health is the fitness industry and uh, the dieting industry and in this way we also avoid and reject or kill any form of, of sickness. So it's not that these things are bad but the thing is the prioritization, the focus on particular diets, fasting, wellness, sports, different kinds of fitness regimes and in the medical field there's vitamins and herbal supplements and vaccines and surgery and chemo and laser therapy and all these. These are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves, but the fact that we focus so much as a way to beat illness, to think that we shouldn't be sick. And then we have books with titles such as Super Immunity, Good Health, Good Life, Perfect Health. Now, there's only really one truth about this body and that it is subject to illness. It's not exempt from illness. So the Buddha goes on to encourage, but when one reflects upon this subject, the intoxication with health is either completely abandoned or diminished. So it's interesting about how, when we look at the Vatupama Sutta again, and we look at this intoxication or vanity to, about health, we have this conceit that we're infallible and we don't see when we think like that, when we have that kind of conceit, that it's our nature to fall ill. So we become quite vain about it. So if someone asks us if we're sick, maybe the impulse is to deny it, saying, oh, no, no, I'm fine. Or we might feel ashamed having to admit to falling ill, like when we have to call in to work and say, I can't come in today. Or sometimes people boast and they say, I never fall sick. I'm someone so blessed with good health. I rarely get sick. You know, I usually bounce back really quick. It's those oranges. Or when we've been diagnosed with a major disease or someone in the family has, maybe we try to keep it a secret. We don't want anyone else to know. Maybe it's a bad thing. Or sometimes we receive news like, oh, and it's a diagnosis about a major illness. So say, for example, cancer. And you think to yourself, I can't believe I've got cancer. How could this be? And on another side of the coin, one might think, oh, thank goodness it's not me when we hear news of someone else's diagnosis. So the thing about this vanity or intoxication with health is it's caused by wrong view and it covers the truth of how things really are. 
we really need to investigate with our own examples because we can see how we, in our own terms, deny the truth or we're conditioned to fear illness or we become intoxicated with health and reject any kind of illness. So one of the things, just like with aging, it's important to recognize the nature of the body is to fall ill from the moment we are born. So if you remember the Girimananda Sutta in the Ankutanikaya, the Buddha says this body is the source of much pain and danger for all sorts of afflictions arise in this body. So eye disease, disease of the inner ear, nose disease, tongue disease, body disease, head disease, disease of the external ear, mouth disease, tooth disease, cough, asthma, catarrh, pyrexia, fever, stomachache, fainting, dysentery, gripes, cholera, leprosy, boils, eczema, tuberculosis, epilepsy, ringworm, itch, scab, chickenpox, scabies, hemorrhage, diabetes, hemorrhoids, cancer, fistula. And then he says illnesses originating from bile, phlegm, wind or their combination, illnesses produced by change of climate, illness produces, illnesses produced by careless behavior, illnesses produced by assault, or illnesses produced as the result of kamma, and cold, heat, hunger, thirst, defecation and urination. So that's a, a very long list. And he also says in other places that there will be illnesses that we won't have the names of in the future. So when we really contemplate what the Buddha is saying, we come to understand that this body is not within our authority or control. There are so many illnesses and more to come. And this body is always subject to illness. Like if we reflect on hunger, thirst, these are the things that make us wake up. Because how often do we get hungry? How often do we get thirsty? These are illnesses or afflictions of this body. So intoxication with health is, is, is a real defilement in the sense that it is founded on life. So again, honesty is the key here. And of course, illness is also another one of the divine messengers. So again, from the Devadutta Sutta, the Buddha says, or it is described as, a man or a woman, sick, afflicted, gravely ill, lying in his own urine and excrement, having to be lifted up by some and put down by others. And we know that the Buddha was not exempt from illness. There's a number of accounts in the suttas where he had to be treated by Jivaka, his physician. And also towards the end of his life, prior to his Parinibbana, he was severely sick after consuming his last meal. And this is given in the Chunda Sutta as well as the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So the tendency in the world is to prioritize and glorify good health. And so there are very strong views about sustaining good health. And in doing so, we demonize poor health and illness. So people naturally in the world tend to cover up any signs of illness because one doesn't want to appear inferior. And so when this is the case, we might tell others, oh, it's because of my diet that I stay so healthy, or it's because of how I exercise every day, and that's why I don't get sick. And other people might say, although I'm 60 years old, people tell me my body's age is only 40, or I had cancer and doctors cut it out of me, I'm in remission, I'm cured. So what's really important about a lot of what we do around good health, it's good to also see the pain and sadness in that. So when people can't accept the truth and cling desperately to good health, when the body gets sick, just like when it ages, this becomes the disagreeable object. And so 
what we continuously experience, if it is a disagreeable object for us when we're sick, is dukkha dukkata, so the same painfulness in pain. And we would lament about me and my sickness, me and my health issues, and that's when it becomes quite obvious that we're experiencing pain and sadness about illness. When the Buddha says that you get sick and you experience the physical illness, and an arahant doesn't experience the second dart from a feeling perspective, it's because the arahant doesn't have this intoxication with, with uh, good health. An arahant knows, and so it doesn't get mentally afflicted, like I shouldn't be sick, why am I sick, and it shouldn't be this way. Whereas an uh, unenlightened being, if we get intoxicated, then we yearn for it to be otherwise. I need to be healthy, I want to get through this painful period. So the Buddha reminds us, this noble disciple reflects thus, I'm not the only one who is subject to illness, not exempt from illness. All beings that come and go, that pass away and undergo rebirth are subject to illness. None are exempt from illness. So again, the Buddha's declaring as a fact, this is a universal truth. It's a collective predicament. We are all subject to illness. None of us are exempt. We are brothers and sisters in sickness. So the Buddha is also making sure that we don't identify in a personal way, but a collective one. So again, seeing that this body is impermanent, subject to change and suffering. And this body is not to be taken as me and mine. We're not meant to identify, again, through sickness as me and mine in personal terms. If we do so, then we corrupt our view. So again, in this contemplation, people think that when they think about their health issues then and they think that this is the contemplation but that's not what the Buddha intended we really need to see it as a universal truth we're not meant to lament about our ailments with aversion and also to yearn to be secretly healthy and infallible so if we contemplate correctly then wisdom is kicking in about this collective predicament and we accept that having birthed this kind of body we are subject to illness. It's a sansaric fact. It's a fact of this sansaric experience. So it's an important distinction. So the Buddha goes on to say, as he often reflects on this subject, the path is generated and so on. So again, he is indicating when we contemplate in this way, we generate the Noble Eightfold Path, having established the right view. And it's possible to attain Nibbana. So let's do another short meditation. So again, the first step is to really investigate, do we have this vanity or intoxication with health? Take your own examples of how this kicks in and really see the suffering in it. Make sure as a second step, we abandon that intoxication with health, health and see it as an obstruction towards the path that we no longer wish to engage in misconduct in this way. And the third step is really to remind ourselves this is a universal collective predicament. We are not the only one subject to illness. And so we understand there's no long-lasting happiness in being going towards something that is subject to illness. And so we don't seek rebirth in this way. And the fourth step, of course, once we see that, to make that very strong determination to have this right view so that we develop the Noble Eightfold Path. So again, allow the mind to gladden, really look at your own examples and experience the mind when it is absent of the wrong view, that the right view is there about this body 
and then find some peace in the meditation. Okay, let's do this meditation for a few more minutes.
Okay, we can come out of the meditation. So the third subject to be frequently contemplated or reflected upon is I am subject to death. I am not exempt from death. And the Buddha says, during their life, during their lives, beings are intoxicated with life. And when they are intoxicated with life, they engage in misconduct by body, speech and mind. So the Buddha is pointing again that if we're vain or intoxicated with life, in Pali this is Jivita Mother, this obstructs the truth that the body is subject to death. So we are death-bound in nature. And when we're intoxicated like this, we would engage in misconduct by body, speech and mind. So similar to old age and sickness, we are conditioned by the world to think and prioritize that our, our activities in this life are really important that it's all about living life and we're often told it's morbid to think about death and dying we're expected to look up to people who are considered living an excellent life that they're successful influential wealthy powerful and hence we're discouraged from the truth and its implications even when someone dies so the world raises or glorifies life and living and it lowers or has a certain contempt for death and dying. And our ideas, attitudes and behaviours are of course skewed towards life and living. So you often, if we think about certain common quotes, live your best life. Life is the greatest journey you will ever go on. Life is a gift. Enjoy the little things in life. You only have one life to live. Live life to the fullest. And then some of the examples of how our society promotes building a life and denies or in a way avoids death is just the focus on our education and careers. Like how uh, we, we get into the education system and then we gain skills and qualifications and we spend so much time on the work and promotions and careers and awards and assets and all those things. And then when it comes to our culture and our food and entertainment, there's so much there as well. The concerts we go to, the holidays, the movies, the sports, it's endless. And then the social norms of, you know, one needs to get educated or get a trade or a skill, have a career, have a home life, get married, have kids and then grandkids and savings and investments and retirement and the whole shebang. And so the books that come out have t titles like How Not to Die, The Longevity Paradox, The Art of Living, The Denial of Death, of Building a Life Worth Living. But when we consider the Buddha's teachings on this precious human birth, how much of our life is focused on acquiring what society considers the best life? And how conceited do we become as a result of this? And how intoxicated then does that become? So when you really look at this, the odds are not really in our favor. The more we get intoxicated with life, the more we go with the worldly stream, the more we cover the truth about being subject to death. And this is what keeps us on the wrong path, bound to samsara, rather than making the most of this precious human birth and getting out of this whole mass of suffering. So the Buddha goes on and says, but when one often reflects upon this subject, the intoxication with life is either completely abandoned or diminished. So this particular contemplation people hardly ever want to do because 
then things get reprioritized. And we know from the Vatupama Sutta that you know, intoxication, any kind of intoxication or vanity is a defilement. And so when there's conceit, we don't see that we are subject to death. It becomes something way back later on or whatever. And the examples might be we think, oh, don't worry about death. We've got our whole life ahead of us. Or we're very much focused on life choices like, oh, where, when and where did you study? And what's your job? And are you married? And, and how many children do you have? And, and what does your partner do? And when's your next holiday? And how about this concert show, movie, match, game, event, you know, all those things. That's what we talk about. Or we tell each other, oh, you're not going to die. You can beat this. Or when someone has died, we keep keep believing or the thought that keeps looping in our mind is, I can't believe she's gone. And so often we tell ourselves, I'm not ready to die. I have so much living I want to do. I'm supposed to die when I'm 100, not when I'm this, this age. And when Dhamma friends come and you say to them, Oh, I'll come later. I won't come to the Dhamma retreat or things like that now. I need to focus on my career. I need to put my family first. Uh, But when I've done that and and all these other things, then then I'll have time for, for this Dhamma. And the other side of it is we do actually end up believing that contemplating death is morbid or we should be focusing on living our best life and, and achieving in the world. So all this intoxication with life is caused by the wrong view. And so it covers how things really are. So we really need to look at our own examples to actually see, do we deny the truth? Are we conditioned to fear death because we don't understand it? We don't have an acceptance around it. And are we really intoxicated with life? So again, similar to the other two, if we examine this intoxication with life, it's important to recognize that from the moment we are born, we are bound to death. So we are inherently death bound. This body is meant to die at some point. So again, honesty is the key. And it's important to ask, do we really know if it's possible to avoid death, to not be subject to karma and rebirth? I mean, other than an arahant who has attained nibbana. So intoxication with life, again, is a defilement that is built on lies. And it's a divine messenger as well. In the Devadutta Sutta, it says, A man or a woman, one, two, or three days dead, the corpse bloated, livid, and festering. And so the Samaditi Sutta also says, The passing of beings out of the various orders of beings, they're passing away, disillusion, disillusion, Disappearance, dying, completion of time, dissolution of the aggregates, laying down of the body, this is called death. So when we are intoxicated with life, we glorify what we've accomplished in life and the wrong views associated with getting intoxicated with it. We might say, let me tell you about my qualifications and awards and the important people I know. Or let me show you my material assets and the wonderful family. Let me boast about the places I've visited and the things I've eaten and done. But it's also important, even as we look at this, to actually see the dukkha in it, the dukkha domina, so the pain and sadness with it. How much money is needed to sustain this life and those in our life? How much work do we need to do? to afford things. We know that work is a source of great pain and suffering, as is not earning enough or having to protect our property and our loved ones. 
and all the disputes and battles that are also very troubling and the Buddha often says a source of great suffering and despair. So what you notice in the world is that it's very common to deny or cover up even the signs of death. So the closed casket at a funeral and the way death is often portrayed in TV programs or movies. Our ideas get distorted about the truth about death and dying. And we also forget that death can come at any moment. It isn't always when we have grown old. Sometimes death happens as an infant or while a person is considered young. I personally know people who have passed away when they're young. And there's the story in the Dhammapada about the weaver girl. That's also a good example from the time of the Buddha. She was a 16-year-old girl and she'd listened to the Buddha's teaching on the impermanence of the aggregates and also about having mindfulness towards death. And then three years later, she received a direct teaching from the Buddha just prior to her sudden death. So she died at the age of 19. But she was very fortunate to have received that teaching from the Buddha because she realized path and fruit of stream entry just prior to her death. So when death comes, it's also not on our terms. How we die is something that's uncertain. There are many, many ways for it to happen, most of which we never consider. And as a result, death often comes as a shock. So the majority of people who can't accept death, can't accept the truth about our nature that is death-bound and cling desperately to life, when they come into contact with a person who is dying or a dead body, it becomes a disagreeable object. And of course, similar to the other two, we experience this dukkha dukkata, painfulness in pain. And so when we lament about our personal experiences with death, so death of loved ones that we can't get over, or the circumstances that have led to death, it becomes obvious that we're experiencing that pain and sadness, and we're yearning for it to be otherwise. We wish that those pets, those loved ones are still with us. So the Buddha reminds us, this noble disciple reflects thus, I am not the only one who is subject to death, not exempt from death. All beings that come and go, that pass away and undergo rebirth, and are subject to death, none are exempt from death. So again, Buddha is making this declaration. It's a universal truth, a collective predicament. We are all subject to death. We are brothers and sisters in death. The Buddha is making sure Again, that we don't identify it as a personal dukkha, that we see it not to be taken as me and mine in personal terms. Because if we do, again, we get a corrupted view. It's more about aversion than seeing the truth, being able to discern with wisdom and then accepting. Now, sometimes people think that they're doing the contemplation, but what happens is all that's coming up is the aversion that you you associate your examples with loved ones that you can't let go of and so what you experience is the pain sadness and sorrow of that loss and also having to face one's own mortality because we wish it to be otherwise we wish to live long to never die but that's not what the truth is but if we correctly contemplate then we understand with wisdom that it's a fact of our samsaric experience when we birth this kind of body we are subject to death And so that's a very important distinction again in the meditation. So the Buddha goes on to say, as he often reflects on this subject, the path is generated and he 
basically indicates it's, it's again possible to attain Nibbana because we generate the Noble Eightfold Path and we want to develop it, cultivate it and continuously practice it. So let's do another short meditation on I am subject to death and I am not exempt from death. Again, remember, investigate vanity or intoxication with life. Take a look at your own examples and really see the dukkha in it. Then when you really see it and connect with it, abandon that intoxication with life and see it as obstructive to the path that we no longer wish to engage in any misconduct in this way. And remember the Buddha's words, this is a collective predicament. We are all subject to death. And so knowing that there is no long-lasting happiness in this predicament of being subject to death. We don't want to take delight. We don't want to take refuge in what is subject to death and seek rebirth over and over and experience this whole mass of suffering. So when we understand that, we make our strong determination towards right view to generate, develop this Noble Eightfold Path. So do this meditation. Allow the mind to gladden. See what the mind is like towards the end of the contemplation that the mind has the right view. There should be a sense of relief, a sense of peacefulness around it. Okay, let's do this meditation. Wishing you well.
we can come out of the meditation. The fourth subject to be frequently contemplated or reflected upon is I must be parted and separated from everyone and everything dear and agreeable to me. And the Buddha says, Beings have desire and lust in regard to those things, people and things, that are dear and agreeable and excited by this lust, they engage in misconduct by body, speech and mind. So the Buddha is reminding us that it is not the people and the things that is the problem, but our desire and lust, in Pali this is chandarago, towards them. This is the sensual defilement that arises in our minds. And it's due to this that we engage in misconduct. So for example, we may harm or kill or defend our loved ones when a home intruder comes, or we may steal in order to feed our family in difficult times, or we defend our parents from others who are shouting harsh words at them, and then it gets more and more. When desire and lust has arisen, it blocks the truth that we must be parted and separated from everyone and everything dear to us. So if you remember the first noble truth of suffering, it includes separation from what is pleasing. We need to see that we're conditioned again by the world towards seeking happiness through sensuality, whether it's our relatives, friends, material assets, workers, wealth. We birth this body with that intention. And what we take as pleasurable, we regard as me and mine. So we end up spending most of our life dealing with these things, transacting, supporting, protecting, and even fighting over. So the world raises or glorifies desire and lust for people and things. And it lowers or has contempt for renunciation, for detachment from those things. So ideas, attitudes and behaviors are distorted. So some of the examples of how our society promotes going for everything we desire, so being conditioned towards that, towards greed, And it discourages us from seeing that we'll be parted and separated from those very same things. So the attitude of the world is, this marriage will last a lifetime. You'll have a job for life. We'll live till we're both 100. Nothing will be able to separate us. And then the idea, let's have a big family. It will bring so much happiness to our lives. Or if you buy this particular item or gadget, it will last. Or if you put your savings into this particular scheme, you'll be better off, nothing will go wrong. Or your family and property is safe with this security system, no one will be able to break in and steal things. But often these things are not true. So the Buddha goes on to encourage, but when one often reflects upon this subject, the desire and lust in regard to everyone and everything, dear and agreeable, is either completely abandoned or diminished. So we really need to delve into our own examples of attachment to people and things that are dear to us. So for example, we might think, I miss traveling and seeing my friends and family. Why have they restricted travel? So this was during the the pandemic. Or we think, my family is my whole life. I don't know what I'll do if something happened to them. Or we are still dealing with the devastation from the death of relatives, our parents maybe, and we miss them so much. Or that person is grieving the loss of their important position. So they've lost it. And so they've lost the power, prestige and material wealth. Or you lose your phone while you're traveling and you think, oh, I had so many important things stored on my phone. 
or a person who gets upset because their partners ask for a divorce or when the brand new car that you saved up for is stolen and maybe it's even you're sad because all the children have left home and they live so far away in other countries or we're still grieving for pets who passed away six months ago and they were our best friends or we've been made redundant from our jobs that we've had for 20 years 30 years however long. So it's important to see that it's our intentions and our desire that is the problem, not the objects themselves. Remember in the Nibetika Sutta, Sankapa Rago Purusasakamo. So it's our, in, our lustful intention, not the actual beautiful objects. So one of the helpful teachings is to really look at some of the stories at the time of the Buddha. One of them is Kisagotamiteri. If you remember prior to her admission into the Sangha, she was distraught with grief, went slightly mad when her son died at a very young age. And she didn't want to be separated from him, even though he had passed away. So she carried his dead body as she went looking in town for medicine to try and revive him. And she was directed eventually to the Buddha, who asked her to bring him a mustard seed from a house where no one had yet died. And as she searched for the impossible, she calmed down. And when she realized the truth, she was able to lay her son to rest in the burial grounds. And of course, there are similar stories for Patachara who also lost her entire family in quite a tragic circumstances. And Visaka, who experienced the death of her granddaughter, Sudhata. And the Buddha saying to Visaka, Visaka, don't you realize how many people die in Savati every day? If you were to regard all of them as your own grandchild, you would, be, you would have to endlessly weep and mourn. Let not the death of a child affect you too much. Sorrow and fear arise out of affection. And the Pali word that the Buddha uses here is pema. So it's affection, attachment, fondness. And we can also reference the sutta that we've been through a number of times in the last couple of weeks, which is the Asa Sutta, so the Buddha simile of the tears. And if you recall, the Buddha says, the stream of tears we have shed as we've roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. So the Buddha goes on in that particular sutta, if you remember, that for a very long time we've experienced death of all our relatives, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, all, all of them, the loss of our wealth and the loss through illness. And we've cried so many tears through experiencing separation from what is pleasing to us. And so we're united with what is displeasing when we include the magnitude of samsara, it's helpful to understand the gravity of this suffering that we experience. And it's because of our desire and lust for people and things. We need to really see the flaw in not seeing the danger in such sensual pleasures. Because if we do, then we would not take delight. We would not welcome. We would not remain holding tightly to people and things that are dear to us because we would recognize the suffering. So we would honor the relationships and the things that we have, but we would hold them with a sense of detachment, not making those bonds stronger. What we're really highlighting here is abandoning the greed path. What we take as agreeable, that sense contact is felt as pleasurable, 
we experience the pleasurable feeling, but then we burn with lust. And the result is painfulness in change. So that is vipranama dukkha in Pali. So the truth is we have to be separated from all that is pleasing. Now if we can wisely reflect on the truth, then we may see the merit in abandoning desire and lust, so our attachment for people and things. And if we don't, then we'll continue to be united with what is displeasing. There's a story in the Dhammapada about these three ascetics. They were a father, a mother and a son. And they all ordained, but they were very attached to each other. So they continued to live in the monastery as if they were still a family. They stayed uh, as if they were living in their own home, talking and eating together and making trouble for others. And they hardly spent any time apart. And when the Buddha was told by the other monks and nuns, the Buddha actually uttered these verses which are very helpful as part of you know, what we're contemplating today. The Buddha says, One who engages in what is not suitable and does not engage in what is suitable, who grasps what is dear, having abandoned the goal, envies those who apply themselves. Do not associate with those who are dear and never with those who are not dear to you. Not seeing the dear ones is painful, as is seeing those who are not dear. Therefore, one should not hold anything as dear. Separation from what is dear is bad. There are no fetters for those who hold nothing as dear or not dear. So that's a very high practice, but it's something for us to contemplate as part of this. So the cause of this suffering is our attachment to what is dear. The Buddha strongly encourages us not to hold anything as dear. Now, for householders, that appears uh, impossible. And for monastics, I guess because you renunciate even your name and you renunciate all the worldly things, you're leaning already in that direction. But for householders, it's slightly more difficult. But one still can practice not to make those bonds stronger because the stronger you make them, the more pain and suffering will come, not just to oneself, but to also those loved ones. And so one would experience great suffering and great despair. So you honor your relationships without damaging uh, for future pain and suffering. In the Mahanidesa, Venerable Sariputta, he lists household life, wife and children, relatives, friends and colleagues, and storing or hoarding as obstacles to generating the path and getting out of suffering. The Pali word that is applied for obstacles here or hindrance is actually paliboda. And it's an interesting word because quite often, if we really look at it, most of the time what obstructs us in our meditation is thoughts around household life, thoughts around you know, our partners, our families, thoughts around our belongings and storing and hoarding and looking after them, and also about work and the colleagues and our managers and our bosses and our subordinates, and also about friends and squabbles and, and differences and all kinds of things. So you can really see when you think about Palibodha, it becomes quite difficult. So if we heed the Buddha's words, we need to decide how to wisely hold people and things. He's not encouraging us to increase our bonds and attachment to them, but to see the importance of holding them in a more detached way and to let go of the wrong view and the desire and lust for them. So most people don't see the danger in sensual pleasures. They don't understand why the Buddha speaks about this in many, many suttas. And 
as a result, they continuously lament when they are separated from what is dear. And so the pain and sadness with that is very evident. So what we need is wisdom and the means to see the truth so we don't keep experiencing this suffering over and over again. And the question that keeps coming up is always, why is this happening to me when we lament? Or why do I have to go through this? So the Buddha reminds us that a noble disciple reflects, I am not the only one who must be parted and separated from everyone and everything dear and agreeable. All beings that come and go, that pass away and undergo rebirth, must be parted and separated from everyone and everything dear and agreeable. So the Buddha again makes this declaration, it's a universal truth, a collective predicament. We must all be parted and separated from everyone and everything dear and agreeable. None of us are exempt. So we are brothers and sisters in this separation from what is pleasing. So the Buddha is making sure, again, that we're not looking at it just as personal dukkha, that we need to see it as the collective predicament. So if we see this as impermanent and suffering, this suffering is not to be taken as me and mine. So otherwise we corrupt our view. So again, when we lament, we, don't want to, we want to make sure we're not expressing the aversion to having to be separated and, and what we experience, <clears throat> excuse me, as pain and sorrow of all of that. Not wanting to be separated from our loved ones is what we really wish for. That's why the aversion comes. But if we contemplate correctly, then we see it as this collective predicament. When we birth such a body, we come into the sensual world then we are destined to be separated from what is dear to us. And so it's important distinction again in the meditation. So again, we need to have a look at this in our meditation. So it's a good opportunity to practice together. So again, we investigate what are the things that we desire and lust in terms of people and things. And to really look at our own examples that we need to see it is something that is destined to be separated. So when we see the suffering in that, we abandon the desire and lust towards people and things, towards these sensual pleasures, because it obstructs us. We're bound for suffering if we, if we don't do so. And so we don't want to engage in any misconduct in that way. And so when we see this, we remind of the Buddha's words. The Buddha says, this is a collective predicament, a universal truth. So... We're not the only ones who are experiencing this. And so we understand there's no lasting happiness when we desire and lust and, and get intoxicated with people and things, with our sensual pleasures. We can only expect suffering. And so then when you see that, you make that strong determination to have this right view and to develop the Noble Eightfold Path. So let's do this meditation for another few minutes to generate the Noble Eightfold Path. And I'll bring us out when we finish. Wishing you well.
Okay, we can come out of the meditation again. So the final subject to be contemplated is, I am the owner of my karma, the heir of my karma, I have karma as my origin, karma as my relative, karma as my resort. I will be the heir of whatever karma, good or bad, that I do. So this fifth subject is really the Buddha saying that people engage in misconduct by body, speech and mind, but when one reflects upon this subject, such misconduct is either completely abandoned or diminished. Now with this contemplation, we need to have the right view about karma and rebirth. Karma is knowing what is kusala, so what is good, skillful and wholesome, and then also what is akusala, so bad, unskillful and unwholesome. There are results for what we do, whether it's good or bad. So our actions through body, speech and mind, we can expect some kind of result. Now we know from the Buddha's teaching that the mind is the forerunner. So it's important to have wholesome intentions when it comes to our actions. So if we truly understand that we accrue bad karma from misconduct by body, speech and mind, we would refrain from such actions. It's because we don't understand that we have the wrong view and or we have the wrong view and we continue to engage in misconduct. When we hold the wrong view, the Buddha says there's a distorted perspective that thinks there is nothing given, nothing sacrificed, nothing offered. There is no fruit or result of good and bad actions. There is no this world. There is no other world. There is no mother, no father. There are no beings spontaneously reborn. There are in the world no ascetics or Brahmins of right conduct and right practice who, having realized this world and the other, make for themselves by direct knowledge, make them known to others. So that's from the Mahachattarisika Sutta. To do this contemplation, it's important to ensure that we establish and hold the right view. Our conviction towards the Buddha helps us here. And as we become more accomplished in knowledge and conduct, we gain some of our own direct insight. But it's good to remember that the Buddha says the results of our actions are inconceivable. So the karma vipaka achinteo. So we can go mad or become frustrated trying to conceive what is inconceivable. But what we can remember from the Buddha's words is that we're bound to samsara for a very long time because samsara has no discoverable beginning. So one place we can start is to ask, how do we create this body? And what the Buddha tells us is that this body is the result or the fruit of our past karma. So if there is a desire to create another eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind, to, to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, to experience the physical sensations and then the mind to cognize everything, it will be depending on our karma. So we may not be born to a human realm because as the Buddha has said, when we looked at precious human birth, it's difficult to gain. That a human birth is a rare opportunity. So we could be born in lower realms or have unwholesome karma, you know, have this wrong view that would lead us there. So what we do now with our body, speech and mind is create new karma. So our past and current karma determines our future destination. And unless we attain the fruit of arahantship, 
and realize Nibbana, then this will be bound to samsara in this way. So this is very much about making sure we have the right view. Because if we're careless with our physical, verbal and mental actions, so we're un unvirtuous, then we need to understand we are the owners of our actions. Kamma is our actions. We're heirs of our actions. And so we can experience or expect to experience suffering in the future with misconduct. Now, due to wrong view, the world is imbued with all kinds of unwholesome mental, verbal and bodily actions. We look at the news. We hear stories from people that we know. And we see that the world is very much imbued with these things. Killing, stealing, lying, harsh speech, divisive speech, sexual misconduct, all those things. And also in the mind, the wrong view, the covetousness and the ill will. So there is some kind of idea that there are consequences in the world. But it's really confined only to this lifetime and based on our legal system and our conventions. So only things such as punishments, jail, fines, things like that. Or maybe in different cultures, also different things, different punishments. So largely, when it comes to society, it encourages negligence and misconduct. Other than when things are conventionally discussed as not good. But usually the general idea is there are no major repercussions if I do this wrong thing. I'll make sure I don't get caught. Or people think, oh, I'm justified in using weapons to defend my family. It's self-defense because the legal system says that. But if you harm someone, there are karmic implications for that. But the world doesn't understand. Or it might be, it won't hurt anyone if I take this. You know, make it mine. And no one will find out. No one will know better. Or if someone harms you and you think, oh, They'll do it again, so let me strike first. Or you think it's okay to raise the voice and tell people off and write things on forums that are divisive. And you think, oh, just because my parents have done that or I've seen teachers do that or role models do it, it's okay. There's no consequences. And even things in the world that says it won't matter if I make money deceiving people uh, with my sales pitch or these small little lies. Uh, people think, oh, what's the harm? You know, they're saying you can have your cake and eat it too. So also people think if I stay mindful, stay in the present moment, actions don't matter. And so it's important to see that some of these things are blocking the path, that our view is still skewed, and that it's very important to really deeply contemplate what it means to be the owner of our karma. And we will be the ones that wear the consequences of our actions. So in this lifetime or the next or the one after. In the Adhamacharya Sutta, the Buddha says, Unrighteous and immoral conduct is the reason why some sentient beings, when their body breaks up after death, are reborn in a place of loss, a bad place, the underworld, hell. Righteous or moral conduct is the reason why some sentient beings, when their body breaks up after death, are reborn in a good place, a heavenly realm. So this aligns with similar suttas such as the Sansapaniya Sutta, where the Buddha gives a teaching on creeping. If one creeps along by body, speech and mind, one's bodily karma is crooked, verbal karma is crooked, 
mental comma is crooked, one's destination is crooked, one's rebirth is crooked. And we see the results of actions in the Chulakama Vibhanga Sutta and also the Ducharita Vipaka Sutta. This is a very important one because in the world, not many people focus much at all on kamma and rebirth and particularly on rebirth. And when it comes to rebirth, this is the very important thing that corrects one's view. People that are able to meditate quite well and develop one of the three knowledges, which is to see past lives, really get this because they understand that they've seen how they've gone from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. It's actually because of misconduct. And so when you realize that, you realize you really are the owner of your actions, heir to your actions. And so the development of the Noble Eightfold Path, you understand why it's underpinned by good conduct, by virtue. It's not the entire path, but it is something that is important to the Noble Eightfold Path. So the Buddha reminds us, similar to the other ones, that we are not the only ones who are the owners of our karma, heirs of our karma, have karma as our origin, and so forth. All beings that come and go and pass away and undergo rebirth, they, they have the same predicament. So the Buddha, again, another universal truth, and that we are brothers and sisters in being the owners of our karma, heirs of, of our karma, and so on. So we all transmigrate in sansara based on our karma, unless we find the way out of the whole mass of suffering. So as was said before, it's really good to see that misconduct equates to the wrong path, that it's rooted in greed, hatred, delusion, and misconduct blocks the Noble Eightfold Path. So if we don't develop the Noble Eightfold Path, there's no ending of karma. So if we want to develop the Noble Eightfold Path, we have to abandon misconduct and develop virtuous conduct. And so the Buddha says, as he often reflects on this subject, the path is generated. He pursues his path, develops it and cultivates it. As he does so, the fetters are entirely abandoned and underlying tendencies are uprooted. So again, similar to the other contemplations, we are establishing right view and this generates the Noble Eightfold Path. So let's do our final short meditation and again investigate do we have the right view about karma and rebirth and really look at one's own examples to make sure that this is true and really see the suffering that can be expected when we don't understand this truth. Misconduct leads to very bad outcomes, consequences. And so the second step is to abandon any misconduct, seeing that it obstructs the Noble Eightfold Path. And in that way, we also see everybody else is the owner of their karma, heir to the karma. So we understand there's no long-lasting happiness in this kind of predicament, traveling through countless lifetimes at the mercy of our past and current actions. So the fourth step is we make a very strong determination to establish and maintain this right view so we can develop the Noble Eightfold Path. So do this meditation, allow the mind to gladden. It may be that you come to the end of this meditation and you think, yes, we genuinely are brothers and sisters in old age, sickness, death, separation from what is pleasing and owners of our karma. Okay, let's do this meditation. Wishing you well.
Okay, we can come out of our meditation. We've now examined each of the five subjects the Buddha encourages us to frequently contemplate. And as you can see, it's very strong Dhamma when it comes to establishing right view and generating the Noble Eightfold Path. There's an inside pathway here because it enables us to keep chipping away at our wrong views about coming back into existence in samsara. We also, as part of this, are really looking at mindfulness of the body. So if we keep contemplating these subjects regularly, more insight comes. We start to penetrate with more wisdom because we understand this first noble truth of suffering. In the Pariyasana Sutta, the Buddha teaches about four ignoble quests or searches. So we mentioned this right at the outset of our session. The first ignoble search is when someone who is themselves subject to old age seeks only what is subject to old age. The second is someone who is themselves subject to illness seeks only what is subject to illness. And the third ignoble quest is someone who is themselves subject to death seeks only what is subject to death. And the last one is someone who is themselves subject to defilement seeks only what is subject to defilement. And these are the four ignoble searches or quests. When we contemplate the five subjects correctly, we gain insight that all we've been doing is these ignoble quests. Like through many lifetimes, and particularly this lifetime right now, is the most pertinent to us. To question what we have been intent on, like the desire and attachment that keeps leading us down the wrong path is a very important one. And with insight and wisdom, we start to recognize the danger, the great suffering and despair and keep going towards ignoble searches and quests. That if we keep going to what is subject to old age, what is subject to illness, what is subject to death, what is subject to defilement, then if it is unlasting, if it is suffering, subject to change, why are we taking these as me and mine? So it culminates in that meditation as well. Now, if you really see that the noble quest is the noble eightfold path, which is what is generated from contemplating these five subjects, then what we do is we nabhinandati, we choose not to take delight. We nabhiwadati, we don't welcome or express. And najosayatitati, we don't remain holding. These are the common things we keep saying in most of our sessions that this is what we don't want to do if we know that these things are subject to old age illness death defilement we don't take delight we don't welcome we don't remain holding because with the cessation of craving which is what those three terms are really signaling we have the cessation of clinging with the cessation of clinging comes the cessation of coming to exist and with that, the cessation of birth, aging, and, and death, and the cessation of the whole mass of suffering. So what we seek in terms of the noble quest, we seek what is unaging, illness-free, deathless, undefiled, unsurpassed security from bondage. So what does the Buddha say that is? That is Nibbana. So this is where we make that determination for truth, for what is undeceptive in nature and that is Nibbana 
And so this leads to concentration due to desire, the chanda samadhi for nibbana. That's the the best of this meditation. And so you can see we can actually travel down the first doorway to nibbana because if we understand first noble truth of suffering, this leads to this determination for truth, such aditana, with the uh, determination for truth, we get to the chanda samadhi, concentration due to desire for nibbana, the unaging, illness-free, deathless, undefiled, supreme safety. And with that, if we understand that, then we restrain. And when we restrain, we can complete even the meditation all the way to immeasurable metta. So this is also a very powerful contemplation. So the Buddha utters these verses in reference to his own insight and practice at the end of uh, the sutta. And they're really encouraging words because they're meant to inspire us towards directly seeing for ourselves the truth. What he says is, Worldlings subject to illness, old age and death are disgusted by other people who exist in accordance with their nature. If I were to become disgusted with beings who have such a nature, that would not be proper for me, since I too have the same nature. While I was dwelling thus, having known the state without acquisitions, I overcame all intoxication, so intoxication with health, with youth and with life, having seen security in renunciation. Effort then arose in me, as I clearly saw Nibbana. Now I am incapable of indulging in sensual pleasures. Relying on the spiritual life, never will I turn back. So that's our encouragement from the Buddha. That's our encouragement to make effort to frequently contemplate or regularly reflect upon these five subjects that the Buddha has encouraged. If we do so, we're able to abandon what is blocking us from developing the Noble Eightfold Path. And as a result of establishing the right view, by following the Buddha's instructions in this sutta, we correctly contemplate and we strengthen our ability to see the lies and deceptions that are cultivated in the world. Remember, the Buddha's path goes against the worldly stream. And so we can recognize the Buddha is encouraging us to lean towards that which is true safety, supreme happiness, and that is Nibbana. So we've now come to the end of our session. Let's express our gratitude to the Buddha for these powerful teachings. Let's also express our gratitude to all our other teachers, our parents, our good friends in Dhamma, all those who encourage us on the Noble Eightfold Path, And if you would like to dedicate the merit from joining this session today with any departed relatives, you can do so now. And let's now share the merits of our wholesome time together with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem to all of you, brothers and sisters. Wishing you all well. And may you continue to find happiness in the Buddha's teachings, develop the Noble Eightfold Path, and grow in wholesome qualities. Blessings of the Triple Gem. Teruan Saranai.